Hey everybody, welcome to Tara and Andrew versus the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide. I'm Tara. I'm Andrew. And this is part 39 in our 3,726 part series, wherein we choose a movie at random from the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide, watch it, do some research, and tell you what we thought and learned. Yeah, and we are uh, morally, ethically, by our, our own standards, required to watch whatever movie we pick, as long as it is something that neither of us have seen before, and as long as it meets a couple of other pretty lenient criteria. Um, in our last episode, we watched Nico and Danny, also known as Crampack, a Spanish coming-of-age story that featured a lot of mutual masturbation. A whole, whole, whole lot of that. So... I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm opposed to that, but uh, hopefully it's Tara's pick for this episode, so hopefully we'll be watching something with slightly less mutual masturbation. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, just a change of pace is what I'm looking right. for. Uh, since it is Tara's turn to pick, I will begin flipping randomly through the guide, and you just tell me when to stop. Stop. Alright. That's one we've already seen. Okay. You have selected Some Like It Hot. Oh. Uh, Billy Wilder, who also did The Apartment, which we yeah. liked a lot. Yeah, we uh, really liked The Apartment, so. So, for 1959, uh, the guide says, Over 40 years since its production, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot still stands as one of the greatest screen comedies of all time. Hilarious performances from Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe, among others, highlight Wilder's superb script and razor-sharp wit. When Lemon and Curtis accidentally witness a mob killing, they find themselves the next target. In order to hide out, they join an all-female jazz band, dressing in drag, to fit in. A joy to watch from start to finish, this film has lost none of its magical touch. Alright. There you go. Yeah, so that does seem like there will be less mutual masturbation. From, a whole lot uh, less. From what uh, little I understand, which is admittedly nothing. But I think I would have heard if Some Like It Hot had mutual masturbation in it by now. It seems <laughs> like that would have come up at some point. Yeah. I'm optimistic that we'll enjoy it to some degree. Yeah, it, I'm wary of the guide potentially overselling it. But I mean, it is uh, a well, classic. Well, it's a classic. So yeah, I, I imagine that we're probably... In, in good hands for this. Yeah, we'll be back with our thoughts and opinions after this musical interlude. Hey everybody, we are back, having watched Some Like It Hot. So, um, yeah, I mean, should we just uh, get into the pre-spoiler rating? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's a five-point scale, ranging from uh, don't watch on the low end, to maybe don't watch, to eh, to maybe watch, and then at the top, the pinnacle, uh, don't not watch. And so on the count of three, we will simultaneously give our rating. Uh, one. Do, do you have a rating in mind? <laughs> you I better. do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, one, two, three. <laughs> sorry. You fucked up the uh, timing. One, okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> one, 
to <laughs> this is not a game of chicken uh i just no, I, <laughs> even though i just said what the ratings were i'm like wait what is it again <laughs> okay oh uh, word dear god this is not this does not bode well for the rest of the episode oh jesus christ uh okay one two three don't, don't not, not watch. watch hey yeah. So, we did it. We've, an agreement. <laughs> an can, agreement, finally. We can, yeah, we, we can <laughs> still long... be married. We finally, we've we've come to an agreement on one thing in our in our marriage, really, not just in podcasting. I think we both were a little worried going into the movie, but with the um, cross dressing. Right, like and... that could have been rife for it to veer into some really sketchy territory. Yeah, um, bad. You know, considering. Bad jokes. The era. Yeah. And uh, we were very surprised and pleasantly so. Yeah. When we started to watch it, I'm like, should we have like made a bet on how sexist the movie was going to be before we started this? Or just how generally problematic the movie was going to be? But we didn't need to, as it turns out. It was minimally. Yeah, minimally so. <laughs> uh, Stanley begs to differ. Stanley. Oh, sneezy. God bless you. God bless you. But yeah, uh, Billy Wilder, two for two. In... Two for two. So, should we just uh, start talking about the plot? Sure. Okay. Go for it. All right, so the movie opens up with uh, some mobsters fleeing from the police. Uh, they're driving a hearse, and the, they're exchanging gunfire, and the the, uh, the casket that they have in the back of the hearse gets shot a few times and starts leaking this fluid and they open up the casket and they reveal that there's a bunch of bottles of alcohol in there uh and then we get the the card indicating that this is taking place in 1929 so it's prohibition era chicago and uh the police arrest the the gangsters and they find out that the alcohol was going to be delivered to this speakeasy that is uh, hidden inside a funeral parlor. So the police go in there and they are going to bust it. But first, the uh, one of the police officers goes in to just, I guess, confirm that it's a speakeasy. And he goes in and he orders a drink. And then we see that two members of the band that are playing in the speakeasy, uh, Joe and Jerry see that the police officer is fiddling with his badge and they're like oh shit we should get out of here yeah and just as they were realizing that that the other police officers bust down the door and so joe and jerry like in the the chaos they escape from the speakeasy and we quickly find out that they are both super super broke like to the point where joe's plan is to go and sell their Overcoats? They're overcoats, yeah, so they can bet on the, the ponies. And uh, so they they do that, and they, they lose their money, and they go to try to see if they can get new gigs um, through a couple of different agencies, and nobody really has anything. One of the agencies has, like, a job, theoretically, but they find out that it's for an all-female band, and Jerry is kind of like, well, maybe, but Joe is like, no, no, no way. We're not, we can't do that. That's ridiculous. So they get this other uh, smaller gig and they, they, they go to go pick up a car to get to, to the, the events. And when they get to the garage to pick up the car, they 
inadvertently stumble across a mob hideout, and it happens to be the hideout of the guy that had ratted the speakeasy out to the police at the start of the movie. So as they're going to pick the car up, the other gangsters, Spats, the other main gangster who was affected by the raid on the speakeasy, show up and they kill everybody. And uh, Joe and Jerry are kind of hiding behind the car to avoid detection. So they almost get away with it, but then they're putting gas in the car and the gas pump gets knocked loose or whatever. And so it draws the, the mobster's attention to them and they are like, oh shit. And the mobsters are about to kill them, but then the police show up or they're about to show up they hear the sirens off in the distance and so they use that as their way of getting out of there they seize the opportunity yes so they realize that they are as good as dead if the mob catches them and so joe kind of begrudgingly is like all right let's dress up as women and do this uh this gig in florida joining this band yeah so joe and jerry doll themselves up um get little wigs and hats dresses put on some makeup heels they're kind of still debating whether or not they should go through with this plan and one of them's like griping about how hard it is to walk on heels and then (laughs) here comes marilyn monroe yeah scooting on past them and the guys are like okay well i guess we have to be in this band now because check out this attractive woman yeah (laughs) so they um board the train and the plan was they would be called Josephine and Geraldine. However, Jerry quickly uh, changes that to Daphne because he never liked the name Geraldine. Yeah. So Josephine and Daphne um, are on the train, meet up with the band, and get settled in. And pretty quickly they start uh, befriending this woman named Sugar, who's played by Marilyn Monroe. Daphne's having some issues with her fake breasts and... She tells Josephine we need to go to the bathroom and fix this situation. So once they get in there, they realize Sugar's already in there, taking some sips off of a flask, and they start quickly becoming friends. So uh, a lot of shenanigans ensue on the yeah. on the train. There's like a party in one of their little cots. Yeah, like it, it starts <laughs> off with, uh, with Daphne and Sugar just like having drinks for themselves, and then it... And it's like every girl in the band is pretty much like crammed in there somehow. Right. And like each one brings different things. There's like crackers and cheese and yeah. salami and who knows what else. Somebody brings vermouth so they can make Manhattans and they're trying to find maraschino cherries. So all the while, uh, Sweet Sue is like griping at the girls for being so ill-behaved. And anyhow, they finally make it down to Florida uh, to the big resort hotel where they're going to be performing so as they get there there's a man called osgood who decides that daphne is like the most beautiful woman he's ever seen and he immediately like starts hitting on her jumps into the elevator with her smacks her her bottom this sort of thing like how he's been married a bunch of times yeah and he's like but you know what you're like the most beautiful woman i've ever seen like Hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he's... <laughs> you, you love who you love, I guess. So. Yeah. <laughs> more power to him. Yeah. And in, in the meantime, Joe is, like, really falling for sugar. Well, they both are, but they're kind of... Joe, I think, is become, starting to become a little bit closer. 
So they're they're hanging out in this hotel, and in their time off, Jerry decides that he's going to go to the beach with Sugar. And Joe's like, oh, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to just take a bath and, and take it easy. And as, as soon as uh, Jerry, Daphne, and, and Sugar take off for the beach, he quickly changes into like a... Like a yawning outfit, I yeah. think. So he, he races down to the beach and he, he sits down and then he sees, he's kind of spying on, on Daphne and Sugar and the, the rest of the girls. And the ball that they all are playing with gets knocked over right by him and, and so Sugar's chasing after it and he's doing his best to be like fake inconspicuous but he's obviously trying to draw her in and he pretends that he is the heir to the shell oil fortune and he's kind of trying to put her off but it's also right. trying to reel her in at the same time and she is uh, drawn in. Yeah so like Sugar had already confided in Josephine that she had the hopes of finding a millionaire when they were in Florida and how she really likes guys who wear glasses because they're really sweet and they spend a lot of time reading and and that sort of thing along with some other details and so Joe knows exactly what strings he needs to pull to like reel her in. So they make plans to go out on a date later and and like Daphne somehow gets kind of roped into going on a date with Osgood also. Yeah. Um, and Osgood is like, well, we'll go, like, later tonight, we'll go out on my yacht, and it'll just be the two of us in champagne and, and cold pheasant. and Mmm, uh, cold pheasant. Yeah, delicious. Um, so, so Joe is like, ooh, access to a yacht, you say? In- interesting. Hmm. And he uh, convinces Jerry to pretend as though he is seasick and can't handle being on a boat so that they, like Daphne and uh, Osgood, have to have their date on land. And uh, that frees Joe up to use the yacht uh, for his date with Sugar. And so when Joe and Sugar get to the yacht, he's obviously uh, doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Like, he drives the, the boat backwards to get to the yacht. He's like, oh, this is an experimental boat. I uh, That's why I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> They get to the yacht, and he's kind of stumbling around uh, confusedly, not knowing starboard from port and other things that you would think that somebody who had a yacht would, would know. But Sugar isn't uh, put off by any of this. She She's going along with it, and he spins this sad story of how he just has no feelings for women anymore. Like, there was a tragedy in his youth where a, a girl that he had feelings for died like falling down a cliff, was it, or yeah, something like that? Something like that. And and ever since then, like he just hasn't had any romantic attraction or any feeling like that towards women. And so this uh, this piques Sugar's interest, and she starts putting the moves on him, trying to get him to get that spark reignited. And eventually, it does. Uh, they they start making out. So it seems like they're, you know, like things are going pretty well. Pretty well, on. yeah, you know reasonably well between the two of them they're they're together effectively yeah and uh so later that night joe gets back to uh, the hotel room and uh (laughs) jerry is just kind of like smitten after he's like rolling around in bed yeah right and joe's like you what's going on you're pretty happy and uh and jerry's like i'm engaged Good <laughs> proposal. Yeah, and I, I accept it. It's you know, I'm, when am I ever going to meet another millionaire? I have to jump at this chance. And, <laughs> and Joe's like, uh, there's like 
laws and conventions. This is not gonna work out. <laughs> but uh, Jerry is mildly dissuaded. He kind of realizes that it's not super feasible, but he's still kind of playing along to see where it goes. To an extent, yeah. he's not. He's not all all of a sudden up and dumping Osgood because of this. So yeah, they they both had successful dates, uh, more or less. And um, the next day, they are in the hotel, and apparently this same hotel is hosting a mob convention, and uh, Spatz and his crew and a bunch of other mobsters show up for this, and... Like, of all places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, like, surprisingly, like, there's some initial confusion with Spats and his gang and uh, Jerry and Joe, but, like, they figure it out pretty quickly yeah. that it's, like, the, the guys that they've been looking for. So they start chasing after Joe and Jerry, and there's uh, just a whole bunch of hijinks as they're running around the hotel trying to escape from the, the mobsters, like... And so eventually they uh, they decide to hide out under a table in this conference room, which turns out to be the conference room that all the the mobsters are meeting in. So they're hiding under the table, and then the mob starts having their meeting. So beforehand we see this cake getting assembled, this giant cake, because, surprise, there's going to be a guy hanging out inside it with a Gatling gun. And, like, one of the guys helping get the um, assassin into the cake is like, now be careful out there because I, I promised my kids I'd take a piece back for them. Yeah. <laughs> this like giant fake cake. Yeah. <laughs> like are the kids going to love, um, don't get any blood on this cake. Yeah. This, Minimize the blood splatter, please. <laughs> yeah. On this paper mache cake that, uh, yeah. Good. Great. Parenting, great. Dude. Good, good, good. And the cake we should say is, is for Spat's uh, birthday. Spat's birthday. Yeah. So yeah. happy birthday, Spat's. <laughs> yeah. So the meeting starts, and the the guy who is sort of overseeing this whole thing is like, okay, now for a special sort of thing, and he's, like, saying shit about Spats and, like, how he shouldn't have killed those dudes at the massacre earlier in the movie right. and, and whatever. But you know what? You're one of us. And, hey, we're going to celebrate your birthday. And so the, the giant cake gets rolled in, and Spats is like, uh, my birthday is not for another four months. It's, and... <laughs> um what's four months between yeah, friends yeah. so dun, 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 here comes the gun and so spats and all his dudes are just quickly disposed of at that moment uh joe and jerry are like okay now is the time to get the fuck out of here so they bolt out from under the table and of course all the other mobsters see them and are like well we have to get these two guys they just witnessed us offing five dudes and they also recognize them as the guys that... Uh, were there at the beginning. Right, yeah. So then Joe calls Sugar from their room and says, Hey, uh, I got a call from my father. I need to go to Venezuela for this new oil field we're drilling. And he's also forcing me to marry this other woman. So I'm very sorry, but we will never see each other again. All right, so Joe and Jerry um, are dressed up again as Josephine and Daphne. And they run off and they decide, uh, well, Osgood's waiting outside, so we'll have him take us out in their yacht, in his yacht, because all of the roads and airports and train stations are being watched by the mob. So this is the only way we're going to be able to get out of here. On their way out the door, Joe runs in and sees the band playing, and he, and he 
approaches Sugar and he kisses her. And then she immediately has this realization that Josephine is actually Junior, who really is Joe, but she realizes he's not really a millionaire or whatever, but she's like, oh, okay, now I see why you're trying to break it off with me. So he runs out and Josephine and Daphne run down the dock, hop in uh, Osgood's boat, and then behind them they find Sugar was running after and she's like, I'm coming too. So the four of them are setting off for Osgood's yacht. And Sugar's like, I love you. Joe's like, you know, I'm not a millionaire, right? She's like, that's okay. He's like, I'm a saxophone player. And she's like, that's fine. Yeah. It's still, they, you know. Like that she had said earlier that saxophone players had done her wrong. So he was. And they were like always her weakness. Yeah. So yeah, she was just like, I don't care. I, I you know, I'm, I'm still totally into you. And Which then, is weird because, like, she doesn't really right, know him. At all. She's only known his personas. That yeah. He's adopted, but, but, whatever. but whatever. So anyway. she goes along with it and just, like, whatever I'm willing, you know, we we had some good kissing. Yeah. So I yeah. guess that's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so in the front of the boat is Daphne and Osgood and. And Daphne's trying to be like, so Osgood, I have to let you know, we can't get married. Um, and he's and Daphne's naming all these reasons like, uh, I can't have babies. And, and Osgood's like, that's okay, I'll adopt, we'll adopt. And like, I smoke. And, he's, and Osgood's like, whatever, that's okay, what, whatever. And then eventually Daphne rips off the wig and is like, I'm a man. And, the, and like, amazing line. Uh, Osgood turns and says, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah. End of movie. End of movie. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what bumped it up. Like, I I was pretty consistently, uh, like, maybe watch, and then, like, that final line, I'm like, oh, okay, shit. Oh, fuck, yeah. Perfect. That that bumps it up to uh, don't not watch. It was the perfect ending line. Yeah. (laughs) Just such a great example of, like, how it could have gone so terribly wrong even up until that second i'm just like oh here we go here's gonna be like the shocked reaction from him and he's gonna be horrified and then nope osgood's just like oh, fine all right yeah <laughs> just like oh. all right baby you, you you're all right you're, you're more than all right you're, you're more you're very good you're very good yeah. <laughs> you're more than all right you're very good <laughs> yeah while we're on the topic of that final line i think uh, we should mention that apparently that line had been a placeholder so, yeah, Billy Wilder and, and IAL Diamond had put that in, and they're like, uh, we'll, we'll come up with something better. We'll it's, fix it in post. We'll fix it. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And so eventually it gets to the point where they're like, oh, shit, we can't come up with anything better. And so they leave it in, and they're still a little bit worried about it. But then the first time an audience watched the movie, that had the biggest reaction. And so, like, oh, okay, no, that was a really good line, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, like, we, we had a, a diamond in the rough there with that yeah. line. Yeah. You know, with, with the the first screening, even if the line, that final line, resonated really well with the audience, the first screening did not go particularly well because they were showing it as part of a double feature at uh, the, the Bay Theater, I think in L.A., the Pacific Palisades. Um, so it was like a double feature with some Tennessee Williams movie, uh, which the, the Tennessee Williams movie like was about cannibalism and lobotomies and stuff. <laughs> it's like, that's a weird double feature. 
Um, and, and the audience, I guess, was uh, like pretty like middle-aged and conservative. And so, uh, so yeah, this, this movie with all this cross-dressing and, uh, and scandalous for the time behavior did not go over particularly well with the audience. But, uh, like, I think Jack Lemmon was, after they, they had that initial screening, Jack Lemmon was talking to Billy Wilder. He's like, what are we, you know, it didn't go very well. What, what are you going to change? And Billy Wilder's like, nothing, it's fine. Like, we, we've made a very good film, so I'm not going to change a thing. I think it's just the, the audience. It wasn't a good fit for them. And uh, sure enough, they showed it to a much younger, like, student, college student-aged audience a few days later, and it went over much, much better. And so that's when they, they knew that they had something good on their hands. They did. Um, and even though the, I mean, that first audience kind of was a... Um hinted at some of the other reactions that might happen across the country. So um, the movie was considered very scandalous at the time by multiple people for multiple reasons. So, of course, there was the rampant cross-dressing and the sexual overtones. And then Marilyn Monroe wore this really revealing, quote, nude sequin dress in the scene where she met uh, with joe under his junior persona on the yacht and they made out like it was super revealing yeah we were both kind of taken aback a little bit too even yeah like whoa whoa, her boobs are basically almost completely out (laughs) like it was like this totally sheer top except for some beading covering uh you know those Mm -hmm. little bits Mm -hmm. and this really really low v drop v um cut out in the back um so very, very kind of scandalous, and that caused the movie, um, all that together caused the movie to end up being banned in Kansas. Um, because it was too disturbing, for, cross-dressing was too disturbing for Kansans. Yeah, that's the quote from the newspaper, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Danielle, if you're listening to this, uh, yeah, he, I guess, don't watch this movie. You're, you can't <laughs> you and Eric, you're not allowed to watch this movie. <laughs> um. And it was, like, rated adults only in Memphis. And then on top of it, the National League of Decency, which was um, a Catholic organization, condemned it for being morally objectionable in part for all and for promoting homosexuality, lesbians, and transvestism. However, that didn't seem to hurt its reputation in the long run or or any of that. So, Yeah, obviously. It's it's... obviously a very acclaimed film. Yeah, yeah. Um, We didn't realize it going in but it it's actually based off of a 1951 german movie which itself was based off of a 1935 french movie uh with similar premises um just of of two guys having to join an all-female band and uh they had tried to find the script to the french movie but they couldn't find it so they had to settle for getting the script to the the german movie as kind of like a, a basis for some like it hot and they, they actually ended up just, like, jettisoning almost everything from the German film's script because uh, Isle Diamond noted later that the humor in the German movie was rather heavy-handed and Teutonic. There, there was a lot of shaving of chests and trying on wigs. And, <laughs> and that's one thing that I really appreciated about this because there is, like, none of that in this no. movie. Like, they make the decision, like, oh, shit, we have to join this all-female band, and then it just cuts to them at the train station in their, you their know... full-on garb. Yeah. If you made a movie today, they wouldn't do that. There'd be this montage of them doing shit like that, 
just like zany music and just like crossed arms shaking their heads as uh jack lemon is coming out of the dressing room wearing right. a wig or something just like cornball shit like that but just for real billy water knew what the fuck he was doing it's really impressive yeah, well, and, and they actually had hired Barbette, who was a, a really famous female impersonator, to coach Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis on Gender Illusion for this movie. I hadn't been aware of who Barbette was. I read a little bit about her. When she grew up, you know, as a little boy in a whatever town, the desire had always been there to be an aerialist. And... Barbette responded to an ad for this act called the Alpharetta Sisters after one of the sisters had died unexpectedly. Barbette um, answered the ad and the sister hired Barbette, told Barbette that women's clothes always make a wire act more impressive and asked if Barbette would mind dressing as a girl. He didn't. So that's kind of how it began. But like Barbette became really well known for doing these aerial acts dressed as a woman and then at the end of it the wig would come off and then look at it's a man this whole time so very famous person for that and especially within europe and and paris in particular and so like barbette was running around with people like josephine baker and all that you know barbette was a, a homosexual and uh jean cocteau was in a relationship with Barbette under Barbette's female persona. It's kind of funny, all these people that were on the fringes of society, like in terms of societal norms back then, that still ended up really well known and now have kind of fallen to obscurity. I kind of want to know a little bit more about Barbette. Yeah, that's that's a really... Interesting story. Yeah, definitely. Well, it was really sad, like, reading about how she ended up in this life of chronic pain after the circumstances are not clear, whether it was, like, an illness or an injury or whatever, but for some reason, uh, Barbette ended up with serious chronic pain that went on for decades, and then eventually she um, died of an overdose. Mm, Jesus. Um, Yeah, so that, that, you know, really tragic ending. Still, like, it it really shows how serious that they were taking this kind of goofy concept the fact that they would go to links of like you know getting somebody like that to be involved to to coach like tony curtis and jack lemon and to add on to that even more uh, jack lemon and tony curtis insisted on having custom ori kelly dresses made for them for the movie um so ori keller was the designer who dressed marilyn monroe for the picture and at first, like, the costume designers were like, oh, no, you guys pick costumes off the rack. And they're like, what the hell? If you guys want us to come off as believable in our female personas, make us actual dresses. And so yeah. Wilder was like, yeah, let's do it. And they had actual custom-made gowns made. So, again, adding to, like, the, the whole craft that went into it. And... Yeah, just taking this this premise that even today would be handled much more clumsily and really doing justice to it and has been handled much more clumsily <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a, a really good article written for the bbc website that we'll, we'll link to in the show notes uh but just touching on that you know idea of if this were being made today by somebody who was not as committed to the the concept the premise uh it would just be so easy to do a much shittier version of this like they, they talk about uh 
Let's see, like, Sugar would have caught Joe and would would have had to have apologized to her, and the viewer would have to, as the article says, would have to sit through a montage of their shared misery before she forgave him, and then they would have had to use their talent for duplicity to extract a confession from Stats, and, and then the heterosexuality of Jerry and Oscar would have been, as they say, vigorously reaffirmed. Like, I was expecting all those things to happen, really. For sure. And, and yeah, just, it's amazing that none of it did. Yeah, and, and the article made, like, a really good point of saying um, how all of these things, like, all the decisions that were made around that, like, not having this moralistic spin happen is just, like, another point of how inclusive the movie is. Yeah. So Marilyn Monroe, I guess she'd had a contract where it had to be shot in color. Yeah. And uh, she decided to opt out of that clause of her contract for this particular movie, that the movie's in black and white, if you did not know, um, because the makeup that uh, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon wore for it made them look ghoulish in color. Um, So, and one thing that I thought was kind of funny is that when they were kind of trying to do a, a test run on the plausibility of Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon being dressed up as women. They he actually made the two of them go into a, a woman's restroom to see if they could pass. And, like, when they, they initially did it, they, it went fine. Like, nobody said anything to them. Although but, they had, like, flop, they were t- like Jack Lemmon said they both were dealing with flop sweat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, Tony Curtis kind of was worried that it, the reason that it went so well is because they looked pretty homely and nobody really wanted to look too closely at them or, or pay too much attention to them and so they kind of touched up their makeup to make them look more more glamorous and then they went back into the restroom and like they were immediately identified as as being fakes and so they went back to the original makeup that they had been using while I was watching the movie it's like they're so obviously like men men you're like how <laughs> how is this plausible at all but i think just knowing that kind of makes it more plausible the fact that they had this incident i think there's some truth to that like if you know they were unattractive as women the people would not really look that look too closely yeah like i I think so that it kind of inadvertently tied up like an an implausibility something that thought yeah Yeah. totally okay so yeah some like it hot we 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 liked it a lot (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, we, we agree with everybody else that it's a good movie. Yeah. Shock! Yeah. Um, let's, uh, with our discussion on that being done, Yeah. let's... Seamless transition. Into talking about a very different movie, uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell? Oh, yeah. Which is... Uh, Bananas. It's uh, a movie by Shion Sono, who is a Japanese filmmaker who's been... He's made, like, a ton of movies. The first movie of his that I saw was uh, Suicide Club, a horror movie, which is not really a horror movie. Like, there's there's some disturbing stuff in it, but it's... Uh, I made you watch it, and you... Yeah. I think we're not too hot on it when yeah. you watch it. Because it's weird as shit, as I think almost all of his movies tend to be. But it's got, like, Suicide Club has a weird glam rock cult in it, and... 
right all these schoolgirls like jumping to their deaths in front of a train and just like ridiculous over the top stuff like that and uh why don't you play in hell is also very over the top but like joyfully so yes yeah it, it's kind of part yakuza movie and then part I guess, like... Filmmaking movie? Yeah, love letter to the, the art of filmmaking. Yeah. And it merges the two really well, and it's... Bananas. Ridic- ridiculous, yeah. It, it's kind of about this girl who is the daughter of a Yakuza head, and she... It, there, there's just... There's so many different... It's really hard to describe. This one Yakuza, this rival Yakuza guy is, like, obsessed with her... And and thinks, like, her father is not the right person to care for her. Like, they've been rivals for decades, like, ever since she was a little girl. And there was, like, a battle at her house when her father wasn't there. And her mom took out, like, most of the Yakuza who showed up at their house. And as a consequence, has been in jail for, like, 20 years or so. Yeah, and so the, the father, as she's on the verge of being released from jail, has been telling her that their daughter is, is starring in a movie. And she actually is not starring in a movie because she was super difficult to work with. So as his wife is getting released from prison, he's scrambling to get a movie made that his daughter can star in. And that's when he runs across couple of steps removed here but he runs across the the fuck bombers yeah this group of like goofball guerrilla filmmakers calling them filmmakers is maybe an an overstatement (laughs) yeah they like haven't really successfully made any films for like years and years and years yeah and and so some of the them are getting kind of disillusioned at this point but then they they get roped into making a movie for this yakuza guy and uh it is Something that culminates in this insane, like, the last 20 minutes of this movie are incredibly gory, depicting, like, the fight between these two Yakuza gangs, but it's... Like, one who is, like, a modern, sort of, like, dressed gang, and the other one is, like, dressed in traditional yeah. Japanese attire Kimonos, with samurai swords and... and... Like, they live in a castle, <laughs> and so, it, like, the, the last 20 minutes is just, like this fight between the two gangs being incorporated as or as being shot by the fuck bombers yeah and it's ridiculously like gory but also super over the top and and funny it's kind of amazing and i don't know describing it like this doesn't do it justice but it's something that we saw at the seattle international film festival a couple of years ago and when we walked out of there I think we were both just kind of like in awe. Yeah, minds blown. Yeah. And and so uh yeah, you, you can it's on some streaming services if you have a subscription to Shutter, it's available on there. So it is definitely something you should check out. Yeah, for sure. All of our thumbs are up. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd like to keep on top of what we're doing, you can always check out our website terraandandrewverses.com. Uh, feel free to shoot us any emails, you know, letting us know if, how we're doing, if you have any feedback for the show, or... Recipes. Recipes, or if you just, like, want to tell us about a cool movie or show you think we might be interested in, that's Tara and Andrew versus at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. So, yeah. Uh, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and we would like to express our utmost thanks to the Seattle band Boat for uh, letting us use their song lately off the album Setting the Paces. Thank you, Boat. Thank you, Boat. 
Uh, we'd also like to take the opportunity to strongly encourage you to support your local independent video stores. They're a dying breed. They've got cool stuff that you can't find anywhere else. Yeah, and uh, so obviously Scarecrow, if you're in the Seattle area, they would, I'm sure, appreciate your support. Other stores elsewhere, if you're not in Seattle, uh, other inferior stores. And uh, yeah, I guess until next time, catch catch you you later, later, potato potato hags. hags.